Let us pray. Uh, would you, in just a minute, help hand out some stuff? Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who declarest thy glory and showest forth thy handiwork in the heavens and in the earth, deliver us, we beseech thee, in our several callings from the service of mammon, that we may do the work which thou givest us to do in truth, in beauty, and in righteousness, with singleness of heart as thy servants, and to the benefit of our fellow men, for the sake of him who came among us as one that serveth thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Could you hand out some of those? And uh, Chris, can you? Yeah. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you here tonight. We're continuing in our series, um, What is Capitalism Good For? Last week was our first session, um, and it was an introduction to this topic, uh, the topic of the relationship between our Christian faith and our economic lives, or how to think Christianly about economics. Oops. I'm messing this up. We, um, we defined Catholic social teaching, which is our topic, as the application of the scriptures, doctrine, and the life of, of the church to society, economics, and politics, ordered to love, friendship, and the common good. So that's a big, long definition, so I'll read it one more time. Uh, Catholic social teaching is the application of the scriptures, doctrine, and the life of the church to society, economics, and politics, ordered to love, friendship, and the common good. And we said that Catholic social teaching is not a political pro program, it's not a um, political platform, it's not a step-by-step -step guide for how to create a Christian society. And perhaps most importantly, it's not dogma. There's no Nicene Creed for how to run a small business. Though, you could, I can imagine a Christian bookstore you know, selling a book like that, maybe. Um, you know, Catholic social teaching is none of those things. It's a tradition, it's an ongoing reflection um, on, uh, on theology, on the scriptures, on our life together in Christ, um, uh, an application of that to society. And so it takes practical wisdom, it takes uh, virtue, not only to think through what the different circumstances we find ourselves in in the modern world, but also to understand each individual case, right? A just wage, for example, in one circumstance is going to look somewhat different to a just wage in a different circumstance, in a different industry, in a different kind of business, in a different city, maybe. Um, there's no dogmatic instruction about such things, but through wisdom and through the guidance of the church, uh, we can actually know with confidence what we should do in any given circumstance. Now, uh, a handful of people were asking me at the, after last week's uh, talk about, okay, when are we getting into some nuts and bolts, some practical things here? And it sounds like we're flying at pretty high altitude, and uh, I suppose we are. Um, we've been spending a lot of time on theology and not so much on economics, and there's a reason for that, um, and it's that we need to define, we need the theological, the theological element um, to define the economic. We don't want to get that order reversed. Um, in our society, that order is often reversed, right? Um, the economic has come to define almost everything, or at least people would like it to define almost everything, putting a dollar figure on every aspect of life and reordering everything in the process. And so we, we want to flip that dynamic around. Uh, my plan is to uh, conclude tonight's talk with a series of questions that are a little bit more practical, but I want to stick with the theological just a little bit longer and focus on this topic of 
the relationship between the church and the world. Um, now, that might seem sort of beside the point, um, but the way that the church has talked about economics and about business life is uh, not simply in terms of ethics. It's not just about an individualistic, and we'll, we'll talk about this quite a bit tonight. It's not just about an individualistic approach to being a good moral person, a good ethical worker, a good socially responsible business leader. Um, individual ethics, of course, are important, but it's only part of a larger picture in which the life of the church, which is the manifestation of the life of God, extends into all of our social lives. Uh, so the relationship between the church and the world should be the basis, this is my assumption, uh, that it should be the basis for everything that comes after that. Um, as we talked about last week, the general American, bless you, the general American disposition toward religion is intensely private and individualistic. Um, the literary critic Harold Bloom, a, a decades ago in a book called The American Religion, said that American religion is basically Gnostic, that um, the American doesn't find God in their community, in their congregation, and in worship, but rather uh, within themselves, within an inward solitude. A one-on-one -on -one confrontation with God is what he said defined most of American religion. We talked about last week a little bit that this American approach to religion separates nature from grace. It separates sacred and secular. Uh, it's fundamentally dualistic. Um, and it, and, and you know, this is, this is, of course, a problem, right? And this is one of the reasons we have to sort of focus on the relationship between the church and the world. For one thing, it's a problem because it separates the goodness of the world. Uh, it, sorry, it denies the goodness of the world. Um, in a way that's very totally foreign to the scriptures and to the, to the church. Of course, God created the world, declared it to be good. Uh, in the incarnation, he took on created human nature. In the Eucharist, he transforms everyday bread and wine into um, his own flesh and blood. So God is very pro-creation. Um, for another thing, our general American approach to religion tends to misunderstand this relationship between the church and the world. We are not um, supposed to be thinking about it in terms of escaping the world, but rather the world being remade by the life of God. And this has big implications for how we think about uh, our economic life. Now, how exactly does this relationship, this process by which the church is remaking the world, work within history? Um, uh, our Lord's redemption introduces that, this idea that something has already been accomplished, but it's not yet been come to, to fruition, right? I think we understand this intuitively in our personal Christian lives, right? That we are saved, that we are being saved, that uh, we will be saved. I think Father Glenn has talked about this quite a bit in his sermons, that the way we should think about the Christian life and our progress in the Christian life is as a process of becoming, becoming who we already are in our baptismal identity. Um, now, the Bible suggests how we might understand this in individual terms, but the Bible mostly speaks about this process in social and even national terms. The verse that I quoted from Isaiah last week was, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Right? So it's a picture of the nations, not individual people, but the nations together flowing into the Lord's house, to the mountain of the Lord, um, to Jerusalem which is our mother, which is the figuration of the church. So all kingdoms and peoples and communities will be incorporated into the kingdom of God. The obvious question is, 
when will this happen? How will this happen? Christ is king, but the nations don't seem to realize this yet. Um, the kingdom of God has at hand, but it's not yet fully realized. Um, but if the kingdom of God is at hand, how does, that, how does that relate to the actual existing world in our everyday life? That's something I want to get at um, a little bit tonight. Maybe the greatest theorist of this question, the person who most profoundly shaped the way that the medieval and the entire church has thought about it is St. Augustine. In the wake of the uh, sack of Rome in the early 5th century, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, which defended the Christian faith against Roman pagans who blamed the decline of Rome on the, the success of the Christian faith. They, they described it and understood it in terms of um, that it was a punishment that the gods had brought on Rome because of uh, the success of Christianity. And so Augustine argues that the Christian faith was actually responsible for the success of Rome, not for Rome's uh, sack and then eventual decline. That's because he said that Christianity was not bound to any particular polity or empire or city, but instead Christianity was itself a polity that transcended all places and all times and that it worked for the good of all places and all times, all cities, all empires, all nations, even for the good of Rome. Now, there's a lot that could be said about uh, Augustine and his writing on the subject, but I just want to focus on two big takeaways from the city of God and his, his, his theory of history and the way that the church relates to the world. The first is that Augustine says that all human history can be understood as a story in which there are two main forces, the city of man and the city of God. Augustine writes the uh, quote, and this is on your handout, um, the earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all, even out of human beings that she might adore them with sacrifices. The heavenly one, on the other hand, living like a wayfarer in this world, makes no false gods for herself. On the contrary, she herself is made by the true God that she may be, be herself a true sacrifice to, to him. What distinguishes the, the, these cities, the heavenly city, um, the city of God, and the earthly city, the city of man, is their orientation. Augustine says that the city of God is oriented upward toward the angels, toward higher things, toward God, and the earthly city is oriented downward toward earthly things. Uh, he says um, he says the city of God is actually fundamentally demonic. It's, it's oriented towards uh, fallen angels. Uh, so... Um, the citizens of the city of man and the earthly city are following these lower forces. So according to this understanding of human life writ large, of, of all of human history, the true history of the world is not about wars or GDP or about the rise and fall of nations. That's just surface level stuff. Now the true history of the world is the story of the fall and redemption of man, a, a fierce and bitter battle between the forces of darkness and death which the force, those forces, of course, are doomed to lose. But God is using the city of God, the church militant, to accomplish this victory. So that's the shape of history. The second big takeaway is that even though the earthly city and the heavenly city are in a fierce battle, sometimes they're hard to tell the difference between. This is sort of interesting. Um, it's hard to distinguish one from the other within the messy reality of human life. Uh, Augustine says that even the church is an ecclesia permixta. Uh, he calls it a mixed church. Um, remember the parable of the of the shep of the shep the sheep and the goats, right? That the shepherd comes at the end of history and separates the sheep from the goats. Or the parable of the wheat 
and the tares, right? The owner of the farm tells his servants, you know, don't, don't, pull, out the, uh, don't pull out the tares don't, that are just sprouting. Let them grow together. And then at the harvest, they can be separated. So Augustine says that it's, um, it's often actually kind of difficult to see where the earthly city is at work and where the heavenly city is at work. Because both orders of rule are seeking the same thing, he says. And what they're seeking is the, the solution, the basic human problem, the fact that we are anxious and we are restless, that we are frustrated by sin, by being imperfect, by being incomplete. The heavenly city, the city of man, seeks God, seeks rest in God, and the, the earthly city does quite the reverse. Um, What the earthly city is doing is trying to achieve peace of its own making, in other words. Uh, its citizens seek peace through, through domination, through an attempt to control themselves, to control their environment, control the world around them. Uh, a sort of hopeless ambition of finishing the project that Adam and Eve had started. So this is a, this is a desire, basically, Augustine says, to become godlike, not through grace and through love, but through domination, um, through the exercise of power and control. So there's the city of God and there's the city of man. Uh, the history of God's work in the world and the history of mankind is about the final victory of the city of God. Uh, and this is the way that most Christians, like I said, Augustine is probably the most influential theorist of this, not just for Catholics, but for Protestants, anyone in the Christian West. Um, and this is how most Christians historically have sort of thought about what history means and how we understand the church in the world in the middle of history. Um, but even if we accept this basic story of things, there's still much more to the question of the relationship between the church and the world. Um, and you know, this is very much a modern question, um, that this division between the uh, sacred and the secular, between even private and public, these kind of divisions are, are modern divisions and they present problems for us for understanding how the church relates to the rest of life. The question we face today is whether the sacred and the secular should be reunited. Um, and there are, uh, you know, the, the answer from secular liberals would be uh, to oppose that. Many Christians would be opposed to that too. They would say this is dangerous. This is about, this is, this is dangerous because it brings sort of ultimate questions of what life is for into a political process and that can make for sharp disagreements and even war, right? Um, but even though it is perilous, and I think we'll get it, we're going to get into a couple of ways that people have approached this that are, that are problematic, it's a, it, we don't have the luxury of accepting this division. Right? Um, the point that I want to make is that even among those who agree that the sacred and the secular should be restitched together somehow, it's not necessarily clear how we should do that. Um, in, in recent history, there have been a number of contradictory ways that Christians have sort of thought about this. And I, I want to go through those real quick. They're on the, the list on your handout. Um, can I look at that real quick? So there's a, a sort of liberationist, integralist, individualistic, and then ecclesial. Um, and I want to run through those quick, and then um, we can get to some more practical questions. So one way that people have sort of tried to get at this relationship between the church and the world is uh, theocratic, or some people have called it integralist. And this is the idea that the, the state should be 
um, uh, not, not just the state, but in, in the old days, what this meant was that the, ch the church should exercise juridical or political power to enforce Christian morals and Christian teaching on the rest of society, regardless of whether people are Christian or not, whether they believe in the faith or not. Um, this is a very sort of absolutist and um, Hobbesian kind of picture of authority. Um, some very traditionalist Roman Catholics have imagined that the Pope of Rome should be the sort of the authority over the temporal powers of the entire earth and all states should submit to it. We have our own version of it in the United States, a kind of um, Christian nationalist approach to this question. They would say if we, could, if we could seize power of the state, if we could seize power of the administrative state, we could enforce a Christian view of society on the rest of the world. Um, so I would, there's a lot we could say about this and we could get into it in the discussion. The way I think about this is basically akin to like Lord of the Rings, right? Boromir is saying, can't we use the ring for good? Can't we use these powers uh, for good? The, the unimaginable power of the enemy could be wielded for something that is good. Another way that people have imagined this is um, what I'll call liberationist. Um, this is probably less tempting for people in our circles, but it's very influential in mainline Protestantism and in Catholic movements, particularly in South America in the 20th century. Some people have called it liberation theology. Um, and it takes a different flavor in different, different circumstances, but basically the idea is that the, to the mission of the church should be added political programs for liberation of society. And in fact, the church itself needs to be liberated, it needs to be made more equal, it needs to be um, remade according to goals of economic goals of progressivism or radicalism. Um, there's a Roman Catholic theologian who says that it, uh, he says he admits that it opens the church to the world, but in a way that appears now to import the structures of the world into the church. Um, we might say that the liberationists and the or the integralists way of, of relating the church to the world sort of confuses the earthly and heavenly mission of the church, each in, in different ways. Um, another very popular way to imagine restitching or repairing this relationship between the sacred and the secular will probably sound familiar to us. Um, you might call it more libertarian or a classical liberal way of imagining this relationship. Um, it would imagine the relationship almost exclusively in terms of how individuals can be good citizens. Good business leaders or workers, good moral agents in the world equipped with the right ethics. It's still very individualistic. Right? Religious faith is still private, but we might be inspired by the faith of the church, empowered by the sacraments, but we still need to go out into the world basically as individuals. Uh, again, this imagines that our ethical imaginations are informed primarily as individuals, not as members of the body of Christ. Um, another way of putting it, and I just want to unpack this a little bit more, another way of putting it is that it approaches the world as if the world is basically a, a neutral space, um, not something that's filled with institutions and businesses and communities and peoples that are either growing more closely aligned with the city of God or with the city of man. Um, and it's that, I would argue, and this is maybe um, controversial if you take more, more of a libertarian perspective on things, but 
the, we have to take into account the, the structures, the institutions, the social groups that we find ourselves in and ask this question, are they um, a part of the city of God or are they part of the city of man? A more individualistic way of approaching this question would say that that question is not even, not even a question we should ask. A, a more concrete example. What does the Christian faith have to do with work? An individualistic approach to the relationship between the church and the world would say that the Christian worker should be a good worker, right? He should work hard. In fact, he should spend the best hours of his day at work as if he is working unto the Lord, right? To the glory of God. But let's say this, uh, uh, we could imagine a worker, many of them do this, working at a call center at Amazon. He can imagine that he's contributing to a larger system in which people get affordable goods and entertainment on a large scale. Surely this is a good thing, right? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. That remains to be seen. Um, of, course, of course it's important that we be faithful to the vocation, to the jobs, the, the circumstances we find ourselves in. Working hard is good. I'm not saying that that's the problem. But the problem is when we have the, an overemphasis on individualistic ethics and the individualist vocation of the worker and have almost nothing to say about whether a corporation or an organization that the Christian worker belongs to is actually ordered towards something that is good. Does that make sense? Is it ordered to God? Is it ordered to love? Is it on the city of God side of history? Is that a question that we can ask? Um, so this approach to the church world relation has... Uh, Generally speaking, almost nothing to say about the structure of the thing, not to mention issues of class or ecology or other uh, externalities. It remains very agnostic about the kind of work that's being done. Um, so this picture of the church-world relationship, I, I would say, is that it imagines the church as, as existing sort of alongside, alongside the world. Um, and it, Austin, you raising a question? You, were, you promised you were going to ask some tough questions, so I'll have to wait. Um, so it's, it's still very dualist, uh, and it conceives of the individual human person still primarily as an atomistic individual. Of course, th this, we are not atomistic individuals. Um, I think we, we understand this. The, this idea of, uh, of an individual existing entirely on its own is kind of a modern myth, right? It's the myth of the... Um, that, that we exist, before we exist in society, we exist in the state of nature. Um, the, I have a quote here from um, David Schindler. It's on the handout, the theologian. He, he argues that um, a better approach um, is to imagine the church as church informing the world, just as he, he says, just as the soul informs the body. Um, he says... This applies not only to the social economic order, but to all worldly orders, all aspects of reality and all areas of the universe. Precisely as the condition for the realization of these and their legitimate worldly autonomy. He says, uh, and this is important, he says, only by participating in communia, which for him means in the life of God, um, in the life of God that we are, we are being brought into as members of the church, uh, as members of Christ, only by participating in communio can the economic aspects of reality as well as all other aspects of reality be liberated. Um, 
this, this is the method of liberation, to give glory to God, which is the deepest re reason for their existence. Um, all right. So what does this mean? Uh, uh, um, what does it mean for the church to be present in the world as church? I think that's the, that's the nub of the issue that I've been thinking about and want to conclude with. Um, Again, as we were saying earlier, the, the, the picture of, of the new heavens of the earth, new earth, of creation, of the fulfillment of God's kingdom is imagined in the prophets as being um, not about individuals coming in, but about whole uh, people groups. And so the, the question is, how, how can we imagine um, this sacred, secular divide being overcome? The theologian Henri de Lubac writes, and this is a quote on your handout, Christ's resurrection created a new world. Uh, it marks the beginning of a fresh age and has set up on earth a type of existence which is absolutely novel. Um, I want to argue and, and, and I want to talk in the time we have left about the relationship between the church and the world being primarily ecclesial, um, which is to say that it should be based on the norms and on the ground of of the church, not on the norms and the ground of something that's primarily social or something that's primarily primarily individualistic, but in the church itself, in the, our identity in Christ. This is a porous relationship, right? It's a process by which the kingdom of God is arriving and thereby making all things more perfect, more what they were created to be. The world, in a sense, is, is passing into the church to God. The, the context... Uh, uh, and we might imagine it as a, a garden or a temple uh, for that porousness, I would submit, is simply the experience of the experience of the church as the church, which is to say um, the context for it is, is simply the life of simple Christian faithfulness. Um, again, it's, I think it can be tempting to think about um, Catholic social teaching as a set of steps or a political program, but the, the most important source for Catholic social teaching is simply the Gospels and the Beatitude, the Beatitudes. Um, do we want to know what social and economic life looks like in the kingdom of God? We should look at what our Lord says about what it means to live a blessed life. Um, I think a lot of people, and I've, I've seen this in my own life, um, people coming from evangelical conservative backgrounds discovering that there is a social dimension to the gospel and then they run off and become political activists or they join an NGO. Um, they become a community organizer. Um, I'm not saying that those things are necessarily wrong things to do, um, certainly not, but if we imagine that that's the way that the kingdom of God will arrive, then, I, then we possibly, we are missing something. Um, we don't need to have a perfectly worked out theory of a Christian state. We um, don't need a, a political program uh, first and foremost. Catholic social teaching should begin with the fundamental gospel call uh, to each of us for a life of daily common prayer and Christian community. It's within that context that we can then know how the Christian faith relates, relates to our economic lives. Um, we can't avoid the ordinary and mundane process of a long obedience in the same direction, in other words. This is a, a long process of developing the virtues, the training and reality that will allow us to bring 
ourselves, our souls and bodies, our families, communities, businesses, all things under this order of love. Um, and that's because our, our faith is not simply a set of ideas and propositions. Uh, it's a concrete way of life for each of um, the members of the church. And the context for this, of course, is the parish. The body of believers who celebrate the Eucharist together cannot be understood as a mere part of the church, as like a, the lowest part of a hierarchy. Rather, the parish is the place, the only place, where one with others is a Catholic Christian in the concrete, normal, ordinary experience of life. Um, and so that, that, I would argue, is, should be the starting point for any political or economic aspirations for social change. Uh, that is, engaging in Catholic practices within the reality of one's place is the only way to answer the call to sanctify the world, to sanctify it all the way down to matters of raising our children and doing laundry or taking out a small business loan or farming or any number of other things. And so I, I think this should set us free when it comes to the question of business and politics, not to feel obliged to come up with some big program for change or wait for the right political candidate to fix things. Um, in fact, um, those things can, can be quite distracting. Um, we, should be, we should be free to just go on being the church and let those eventualities take care of themselves as they arise. I'm not saying that we should be anti-public policy or uh, anti-intellectual. We should think through these difficult questions about politics and capitalism. Um, it's not that public policies and politics do not matter, but they are, of course, secondary. Um, the center of Christian life is the local body of believers, and the center of the parish is Holy Communion, um, the, the Eucharist, and out of that flows and should flow a richer social life. It, this is the context in which the social and the individual come together. So with this relationship between the church and the world in mind, and with the life of the parish in mind too, we can begin to ask um, significant questions about our economic system and our economic lives. And that's what I want to close with. So I'm just gonna, I'm, I was thinking about this, uh, I wasn't sure how to, how to end this today, and I was thinking that I would just conclude with, with a set of questions, and, and we could add more questions to it if we want to, uh, or maybe I would love to hear your, you guys' thoughts on these inquiries. Um, but these are the questions that have been coming to my mind as I've been thinking through this topic. So one would be, does my participation in this corporation, industry, small business, and my university department, or nonprofit organization, or whatever, does it form me into the kind of person, into a kind of person that is contrary to the new life that I am being formed into in Christ? That's a, that would be a good, I think, good question to ask. Does an economic activity that I am involved in <coughs> that is my job, does this, does this economic activity, does it promote friendship? Does it rest on and promote trust? Um, when economic change is premised on commodification, on the threat of litigation, on impersonal circulation of dollars, it can become really difficult to form friendships. In fact, I think we can see within the history of business in the last many decades, the way in which the rise of those kinds of ways of uh, doing business have eroded friendship and social 
cohesion and local contexts. So what does it mean in our economic lives for friendship and trust to flourish? Uh, the rise of professions in the early 20th century in which education, for example, or food preparation or wise counsel have been outsourced to experts has often come at the cost of the d diminishment of friendships and families in local communities. Another question would be, does this economic, does a particular economic activity, does it tend toward what is real or what is more abstract? Does it pull us, ourselves, our imaginations out of a human and local scale in which we can have a genuine knowledge of places and things? Is it constantly uprooting people? Uh, in other words, is it, does, it, does it have a humane character to it? The, the most um, powerful sectors of our economy are basically big abstraction machines. They encourage us to think in terms of dollars and cents, yields and profits and savings, bigger barns in the language of scripture, rather than thinking about whether something is good or what it is good for. Um, I was thinking about this recently with, with um, like home remodeling, like we think about when someone does something, big project in their house, what the value that it adds to the house on the real estate market. Um, instead of thinking about what good things that this, this project is accomplishing, we think about it in terms of sweat equity. Uh, so thinking about whether, whether something is good or what it is good for, again, as I said last week, one of the reasons we are, as a society, are so desperate to measure almost everything in terms of dollars and cents and profit and loss is because uh, we desperately want to assert control. And I, I would say that that's kind of city of man sort of behavior, or it can be. So a, an important question to close with is, is it about domination or, uh, and control, or is, this, is our economic life about love and service? I don't think these are totalizing questions. I'm not saying that we need to decide that ca whether capitalism do is doing this or not. I think these are more, um, I think, helpful questions for thinking about our own, our own lives and in each particular case, um, things that would be good to have conversations about uh, with our friends. Um, and I'm going to end there. So.